The Major Spoilers podcast covers news, reviews, and of course, spoilers, and goes into details about the topics discussed. So if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Stephen, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans. In this issue, I am the atomic powered robot. Please give my best wishes to everybody. Beep boop, beep boop, boop, boop. <laughs> Hey, everybody, welcome to another exciting issue of the Major Spoilers Podcast. To tell you what, we're going to make this a special standalone issue. Dun, 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 dun. Something we like to do for you, the listener, because we think that you are the greatest in the whole wide world. You specifically, all you listeners, are yes, the greatest. You. And you, and you, and you. Uh, this issue, we are going to talk Atomic Robo. But not gonna... you. Oh. You know who you are. <laughs> yes, you. How dare you. Uh, this issue, we are talking Atomic Robo from Red 5 Comics. It's written by Brian Clevenger with art by Scott Wegener. We're going to take a look at Volume 1. Or, I'm sorry, Volume 3, the first issue in depth. And joining us on the show, Brian Clevenger, Scott Wegener. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Nice to meet you. Maybe before we get uh, started, maybe a little bit of background on you guys. Brian, uh, a lot of people know you from 8-Bit Theater, and maybe for people who don't know what 8-Bit Theater is, what is 8-Bit Theater? 8-Bit Theater is a webcomic that I started back in uh, January of 2001, and it's essentially about four fantasy heroes in a generic video game type setting, and they are the they're supposed to be saving the world, but they are the worst possible people to be doing it. They'll probably end up destroying the world more than anything. <laughs> oh man, and, it sounds uh, like us. Yes, and and that's that. And that's a that's a somebody asked. That's a series that's actually ending pretty soon, isn't it? Yeah, it should be ending. I don't. I can never guess when, but it is winding down to its uh, inevitable end. Okay. And Scott, you are an artist. I, I don't know how many people know you outside of Atomic Robo. What else have you done? You're you're doing something well, with Image Comics right now, right? Oh yeah, I just had a uh, I've got a mini series that's just the last issue is about to come out uh, this month or this week, I think. Uh, it's called Killer Demons, uh, kind of a horror comedy written by uh, Chris Yost of various X books and right. uh, Marvel action fame. Um, but, 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 uh, aside from some really teeny tiny uh, short stories in, in anthologies that you know five people bought, uh, Robo was actually really my first work. Um, yeah. Well, then, how did you two hook up, and and how did Atomic Robo come about? Oh, go ahead, Brian. Well, we met at a gay bar. <laughs> That's always a great way to start a story. Just like Steven and Rodrigo. <laughs> <laughs> Rodrigo's the bottom. Right, uh, actually, uh, I, I found <laughs> I found uh, Scott a uh, gallery of Scott's art uh, online completely by random one day, and uh, I emailed him the, the basic pitch for Atomic Robo, and uh, this was after several artists had already rejected the idea or they were too busy or whatever. And when I finally found Scott's stuff, I was like, wow, this guy has got to be it. If it's not this guy, it's nobody, because it was just exactly what I was looking for. And uh, so thank God he said yes. And um, Scott brought so much to the project that it went from work uh, work for hire to co-creator in, like, I think it was like two or three weeks. Wow. And uh, and uh, he just improved it, you know, overnight, practically, just, you know, 
you know, brought the whole thing up 100% from where it was. And uh, so that's how we met, that in the gay bar. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of our big listeners, uh, Life is a Glitch, up on the Major Spoilers website, he really wants to know where did you come up with the inspiration from Atomic Robo? Um, where did I get it? Oh, basically, I, I just love the Ghostbusters and Buckaroo Banzai and Indiana Jones. And I think my mind had always been working on uh, a subconscious problem of how to turn all of them into a single product mm. for the majority of my childhood and adult years. And I figured out, you put robot in there, and it all works. Mm. So that's how that happened. Oh, cool. Uh, well, if people haven't checked it out, this is actually the third volume. Uh, the first volume kind of jumped us through time, uh, looking at different periods in, in Atomic Robo's life and actually kind of seeing how this bad guy that started out in the first issue wound up in the last issue. The second volume took place exclusively during World War II and one of the events during World War II. And Atomic Robo Volume 3, Number 1, just came out last week for people on the East Coast, this week for the people on the West Coast, apparently, because of a diamond mix-up. Uh, but this one takes place in 1926. Actually, why is, you know, is there a particular reason why you went with that with that year? I guess Brian, um, Yeah, I guess. it... Oh, is there more to the question? No, no, no. I was just... Uh, go ahead. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, uh, basically we needed Robo to be young because uh, we haven't really seen him this close to his date of creation. He was first uh, turned on in 1923, so I wanted to kind of show uh, the juxtaposition between his early young days and the, you know, the adult, if you will, robot that he becomes uh, in the modern era. And uh, there's also a good date to use because H.P. Um, Lovecraft and Charles Fort were still alive at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really I love those two uh, historical figures that are such... Uh, one of the things that I love about Robo is that you can use these amazing people throughout the 20th century who were just so weird and inter interesting you couldn't possibly make them up. And uh, so I've always been looking for an excuse to use these two guys. So uh, 1926 was just a, a natural sort of a conclusion from uh, you know, wanting to both show Robo's early days and wanting to use those two guys. Yeah. In in this first page, we you know, we're kind of doing this slow zoom in to New York City and all the way down into the... Uh... Tesla Dyne headquarters or, or uh, whatever the company's called. And we see Robo studying, and it seems like in his early days he's always studying for something. In fact, I think wasn't it in the, uh, in the first volume where Edison and, and I, who is it, Rasputin? Rasputin's ghost. Uh, come and attack, and Robo's studying then too. Uh, yeah, he's actually a student at Columbia University at, at this time. Now, is this something that, is that something that's general knowledge? I mean, did I did we miss something from volume one? Am I not remembering something no, that said he was a student? No, no we just it, we've never actually come on to said it, but that, that is what that is, and eventually that piece of the puzzle will be revealed. Okay, in this volume, or is it something down the road? Uh, just down the road. Um, okay. My writing, I don't know. I, I take a weird track. Uh, a lot of comics because they're so. Uh, intensely linear. They really try to spoon feed you everything there is. And mm -hmm. uh, my approach with Robo is to just you know, throw the events at the reader and just let, let the pieces come together eventually. It's not very um, efficient, but uh, we have fun with it. Well, but, but 
kind of going against that, though, if, if people go up to the, what is it, the AtomicRobo.com, it's Atomic-Robo.com website, you actually mm-hmm. have, like, a pretty detailed timeline well, laid yeah, that's out there. To help out with the puzzle pieces. Yeah. Now, is that something that readers probably should go check out before they read the series, or as they're reading the series, or is it just something that's kind of here if you want to see where everything fits together? Yeah, it, it's just there for, you know, to, just to see it. It, it. You don't really need any kind of... Uh, continuity explanation to enjoy Atomic Robo. Mm-hmm. I guess for Scott, uh, mm-hmm. coming in as the artist on Atomic Robo, uh, since the beginning, especially in that first volume, a lot of people compared your art to Mike Mignola mm-hmm. and Hellboy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Did you, I mean, what were your reactions to that? Did you like it? Did you not like that kind of comparison? Well, you know, at first... I liked it, and then it got annoying and repetitive, but I couldn't really... I think my problem was comparing the book to Hellboy, not the art stuff, Mm because obviously Mike Mignola was a huge influence on me. Um, In fact, at the time when we started doing this, outside of, like I said, those very small kind of indie anthology bits, I, I had never done sequential artwork, and... I hadn't been reading comic books for geez, the better part of a decade, and the only thing I had left to reference was uh, the only comics I hadn't gotten rid of, which was my Hellboy collection. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, there's a huge Magnola influence. Um, I think towards the end of the first volume, and pretty feel pretty good about confidence saying definitely in the second volume. You know, I, I kind of figured out my own style, but uh, right. But it's, it, it, yeah, so, yeah, no, if I had to make a list of my various influences, he was definitely at the top. Um, and, and literally on that first issue, I hadn't yet read, you know, Will Eisner's book on, or, or figured anything out. So I was literally opening up every issue of Hellboy I had on the floor and looking for a camera shot that matched what was in the script Brian had given me because I had, I, had oh, I, I had no point of reference for myself. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was it was a, it was a real uh, real eye opener uh, of just how tough. Um, you, know, you see a lot of people do beautiful pinups and 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 whatnot, and then they try to do a, a, a sequential story, and they're just crap at it because it's such a different uh, a different animal, I guess. So, it's a lot of work too. Uh, Say it again. Oh, I, I was saying it. Actually, drawing a comic book is a lot of work. I mean, designing a character is one thing, but then drawing it from panel to panel. How do you, uh, I mean, how do you, how do you approach drawing Robo? Well, these days, um, like at, at the same time that we were doing volume one, I, I was, I was dedicating uh, about an hour or two a day to reading books on, uh, sequential storytelling. Cause I realized I had gotten myself in way over my head, um, and storyboarding and cinematography books and whatnot. And so now I think I approach it more from a storyboard mechanic rather than a traditional six-panel page. Um, I, I, what did I see that first? There was a, a, a Daredevil comic that I picked up in some, like, you know, dollar bin somewhere. A Daredevil Ninja, that was it. Um, Bendis wrote it. I can't remember who the artist was. Chris something. Um, but they specifically drew it to look like the panels or movie screen, the entire issue. Yeah, um, right, and right. I, I thought it was a really interesting way of, of doing it. And, um, it, you know, it's a handicap sometimes, but I, I thought it was unique enough and kind of interesting and, and fun. 
course, it took us about half a volume two to store. Took me about half a volume two to figure out how to use it effectively. But yeah, and I, th- um, I think that was kind of whenever I reviewed the volume, that was one of the my big critiques early on was always oh, using the same four panel layout. And I guess for me and Rodrigo and and maybe Matthew, all coming from a video background, we're we're in film background, we're very familiar with the storyboard format, and that's why yeah, I thought yeah. it was kind of plotting. But then by the end of the series, I had warmed up to what you were doing, changing the vertical height of the uh, of the panel. Yeah, and it was, you know, it's funny because Robo, for, I think for both of us, uh, with me definitely, the whole thing, in addition to being my job, it's also this giant, you know, this incredible learning experience where, you know, we, it didn't occur to me. And I was so overwhelmed with just getting that down that, that you know, moving, doing anything interesting, really interesting with the camera, if you want, I don't know, I always think of it as the camera. Right. Um, doing anything really interesting with that, like I was so mentally overwhelmed at first of that, that I couldn't even do that. But now, yeah. Um, didn't do a whole lot of it in three point uh, volume, the first issue of volume three. So that's a, it's a lot of kind of quiet, goofy scenes with people sitting around talking. But yeah, a lot of a lot of changing the vertical. And uh, now now I'm about halfway through work on volume three, and I'm kind of thinking that you know maybe being completely married to this uh, widescreen panel thing is not a good idea because every now and then, like I said, uh, on the hell, on that that Daredevil thing, occasionally it was a real handicap to them, and it just you know. It took me four months, five months to say, oh, wait a minute, I can do what I want, right? right. <laughs> so this yeah. day a lot of vertical, you know, vertical panels instead of horizontal panels. But I think as a general rule, yeah, we're going to, we like the widescreen, but you definitely need to vary the, the height of the panels and really move the camera way in, way out, take some different angles every now and then. So, Brian, um, how is the collaboration process then? I mean, do you write in the camera angles that you want, or do you start in like on page two? you know, wide shot of Robo at desk, you know, reaction shot or whatever of of the door with the knock, 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 and then a close-up of Robo telling the person to go away and then back to the wide shot of the door? Or how do you how do you plot that out for, for Scott to pick up on? Uh, well, I took a lot of, uh, not screenwriting specifically, but just courses on film throughout my uh, my college days. So screenwriting and cinematography were kind of ingrained uh, in me. So I, I will lay out, like, you know, establishing shot, external day, whatever, you know, do a close-up here, react, you know, over-the-shoulder reaction shot, you know, all those all those screenwriting buzzwords for uh, camera direction. Right. And I'm used to... It's a 50-50 shot, whether or not it actually comes out that way. Uh, I'll let Scott explain why. Oh, now? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I'm I'm not real good at following Brian's direction. Ah. <laughs> I'll admit that. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think I'm belligerent about it. I'll, I think I'll, I'll usually <laughs> consult with you first and say, well, it works on paper, but visually, trying something different might work better here, or might work better there. Um, uh, or in the case of the issue that we're just wrapping up now, we changed enough things significantly that I don't think what I've been drawing for the last two weeks has any relation to the scripted action. I don't think um, it's in the, it's in the same spirit. That's what counts. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of where we end up. Is, is that you know we, we keep the spirit intact and 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 we seem to end up in the same place that we were headed anyway. Yeah. Uh, well, I, think- I, I basically. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, basically I, I suck to work with is, is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think... It's, it's oh, go ahead. No, 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 please finish. 
uh, as far as I'm concerned, really, I mean, I tease Scott about it constantly. He's probably tired of hearing about it. But when I write the script, to, to me, it's just, especially the panel layout and camera angles, it's just like an outline. It's like, all right, here's my idea. And I totally trust Scott to, you know, if he thinks it's going to work, then bam, he'll do that. If he thinks something else is going to work, you know, he usually brings it or, you know, mentions it to me first or brings it to me first or whatever. But, you know, sometimes he doesn't. And either way, every time, now I'll say nine times out of ten, it's absolutely an improvement. The other time, it's just as good as it, as it would have been the other way, to my mind anyway. So who cares either way? Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's actually, I really appreciate it because I know that panel layouts and page layouts are not my strong suit. So having Scott there to, you know, make it better, I really cannot complain about that. Well, as you know, I guess as a as a good bit about the widescreen format, Atomic Robo is available on iTunes, where people can download the electronic version of the first volume. I don't is the second volume up? No, um, not yet. The, the the last issue of Volume One just came out. I think like last week. Okay, and I did notice that as I'm reading, you know, the square panels versus a, a horizontal panel versus a vertical panel. You know, this widescreen format that you use in, in Volume 2 actually would be a benefit for the high iPhone user or the uh, iPod Touch user or really uh, an electronic version of that in general. Definitely. Yeah, that was just kind of, that's kind of a happy coincidence. Um, but, yeah, it, it will definitely work much, much better uh, on the iPhone. Now someone just needs to buy me an iPhone so I can see how cool it is. <laughs> well, I, I checked it out today. The first volume is free for our listeners who want to go check it out. Uh, it's, oh, no. it's a different experience. Yeah, the first 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 issue it said was free. I don't. I think the rest were like ninety nine cents. That sounds right. Yeah. Okay. How is that working? Do you guys get a lot of feedback from from the electronic version? Um, what we've heard so far is that um, I don't. I don't know, Brian. You might have this, but I, I don't think I've gotten solid numbers. But uh, we are in the top twenty uh, books on iTunes. Oh. Uh, towards the bottom, but you know we're in there right. with the Bible and War and Peace and things like that. Um, that. This is number one, the free one. Right. Um, and that our regular, the, the, the not-so-free issues are still the best-selling comic that Iverse has put out there, with the exception of uh, all the little comics that are coming out right now, um, gearing up for the, the Star Wars movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, Star Wars, I'm sorry, Star Trek. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I got it. If there's another Star Wars movie, I'd kill myself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I, I think we're both pretty comfortable, you know, taking second best to Star Trek, <laughs> I guess. Well, yeah, if you're going to fall behind somebody, might as well be Star Trek. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> any any thoughts uh, from Matthew or Rodrigo on page three of the comic before we get into page four with the introduction of... I, I guess my thing is on that third panel on page three, that pose of where he's stomping to the door just so much reminds me of, like... 1940s, you know, stomping, angry, animated cartoon figure. You know, yeah, kind of over, uh, over exaggerating the motion. Yeah, yeah. Is it, you know, here you're dealing with. Uh, it's really, if you're talking juxtaposition, I found it really interesting because here's Robo, that's this very stiff metallic figure, and yet when we introduce H.P. Lovecraft, he is this very animated, almost stretchy character. They're almost opposites of one another. Yeah. And yeah, uh, Lovecraft was kind of definitely a per the script kind of a, I, you know, I, I think, I think I ended up just drawing him, uh, subconsciously to kind of reflect his insane personality, I think. And mm-hmm. I just kind of saw that 
kind of lanky, hand-waving, scarecrowy kind of nut job. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting, I guess. I mean, kudos to you because I could tell it was H.P. Lovecraft right away without anyone nice. saying, you know, his name or anything. Um, but the other guy really took a while for me at least to know who it was. Was that something Brian that you had to think about when you're when you were writing in Charles Fort? Um cuz it's not until yeah. like page 10 before they actually say who who his name is. Yeah. Uh again it goes back to what I was saying about you know spoon feeding. I mean it would have been a, a much more uh it would have been more correct for me to say their names earlier in the conversation but uh, it, it just, to me anyway, maybe because I, I, I am a writer, every time that a character does that, you know, they walk in the door and say, hello, Steve. And you know, they're only saying Steve so that the audience can know the name. I don't know. That just annoys me. Okay. So, yeah. um, even though I know I should have done that, but I'm still, well, it's not, it's not I wouldn't say you had to do it. I think it, it certainly <laughs> builds tension because I didn't know who they were when I was, when I was reading this. Um, uh, until the names were said, and I was, you know, going through the pages thinking, "Who are these people?" Right, and and it made me interested. Right, and I guess for me, it kind of drew me in more because I'm thinking, well, when you think about H.P. Lovecraft, his contemporary and his friend and everybody was, um, uh, Conan, um, Howard, Robert E. Howard, and so I was thinking, right. well, that doesn't look like Howard, but it'd be pretty cool if they actually had a a team up adventure in here. Yeah, that would have been pretty cool. <laughs> Matthew, what were you going to say? Well, the thing that, I mean, referring to that, well, the way I think of it is that Jim Shooter school of comics writing where, hello, amazing Spider-Man, how are you today? <laughs> That's one of the things that I like is it's not so obvious. You have to, I mean, you have to participate in the story. You have to actually put in and go, wait a minute, that, oh, right, that was a reference to this over here, or, okay, this character is here. I actually knew Charles Fort, but that's just me. But did you know right away just from his from his picture? I read the Fortean Times for like five years. Ah, okay. Every single, yep. you know, every single whenever it came out. It was actually bi-monthly, I think, for a while. You're probably the only one who could recognize him visually. I did not get his likeness down quite that, quite as quite as good as I wanted to, but I think we only well, had, what, two photos to go off of? Yeah. Awesome. What can yeah. I say? <laughs> well, Brian, how, I mean, how much research, it's obvious, especially in the first volume, well, in all three volumes, that you are dealing with alternate histories and you're dealing with historical figures. How much research do you have to go into to pull out Lovecraft is a racist or that, uh, you know, Fort was really the, the Fox Mulder of, of, you know, of that time. Uh, I want to say, uh, you know, I want to go on about how, how incredibly difficult all the research was and, you know, make myself out to be this brilliant <laughs> person. But really, it takes an incredibly superficial reading uh, of these people to, you know, ferret out uh, the, the presentations they have in the comic. I mean, it's just, it's very well known that, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft was quite racist, even considering, you know, that at that time, just racism was, was a fairly common, uh, you know, and accepted practice. He took it to a whole other level. So, right. you know, I and and then that that posed a problem with uh, writing this comic because on the one hand, <clears throat> it would have been easier to just you know gloss over that, not mention it at all, just you know power through, but. You know, that, that just seems really insincere, really dishonest. You know, that he was a racist. 
you know, we should deal with that. You know, it's it was part of who he was. Well, and and you put it off so blatantly, where it's like, oh, who is this uh, lesser being? Yeah. Who is this uh, this yeah. pygmy that wears pants and listen to his voodoo so, talk and all that stuff? I mean, it's and I guess maybe coupled with the art, where you know, Lovecraft is just in these really geeky, you know, far out expressions. Yeah. It yeah. comes off as really comical. Yeah, I think that was that was really the the only way to a have him be you know just blatantly racist, but also b make him at all sympathetic despite this because it is just the things that he's saying are so ridiculous. The poses that Scott has gotten in are also ridiculous. It, you know, nobody reading this can really take offense at it. I hope because it's, we're just you know kind of pointing out how idiotic these ideas really were. Yeah, and mm-hmm. but at the same time, it, it, he's kind of endearing in a way because it's just so over the top and and dumb. I don't know. Well, it's he's automatic here. But he's a Stephen Colbert of the Robo Universe, basically. Right. <laughs> there you go. Well, I, I just love the take us to Magic Thunder Man, and Robo's <laughs> yeah, just like you guys are drunks. Get out of here, you know, kind of thing. And that, that's another thing. It, all the racism is really directed at Robo, who has no yeah. race, so he's kind of a safe target in a way. And yeah. also, Robo. He's just—I mean—he's so condescending to Robo. It's just absurd. <laughs> well, and the fact that Robo just takes it, though, and I think, yeah, Brian, you'd mentioned on the Atomic Robo site that you know Robo is a minority, and yeah. Lovecraft is treating him that way. Obviously, in this first issue, we don't get to see Robo address that issue. Is that are we going to see him address the racism, or is this something that Robo has just learned to accept in the three years that he's been active? Uh, I don't know. Racism is a it's a complicated topic, and one I think that is ultimately outside the purview of Atomic Robo as a product. Uh, you know, because we're not here. Like I said in the blog post where I talked about racism, you know, it's just it's not a comic where Robo's going to jump in front of the bullet and kill Dr. Martin Luther King. You right. Know, it's mm-hmm. it's so to put him in, into that debate directly, I, I think is really you know because I thought about it during the planning periods. You know, should he? How involved should we show him being in say, civil rights? Because obviously, himself uh, in, in the very first volume, he's trying to get you know any human rights whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So it's something empathetic to something that he'd be uh, involved with because he's you know this huge celebrity in this world. Um, but you know, to show it directly, I think it just really takes away from the actual sacrifices and actual battle of the, the civil rights movement mm-hmm. in in real history. So I think at best we'll just sort of you know, show implications, you know, uh, by you know, dialogue or off-the-cuff remarks that he was involved or you know, sympathetic toward it and tried to do something to help, you know, donating money or who knows what. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, I think I just babbled on there. No, I mean, that's good to, to kind of know that thing. And that kind of, you know, you're talking about Robo's involvement in history. You're You're also kind of taking liberties with the historical figures themselves because by all accounts, you know, Lovecraft was not this crazy, spastic, you know, Flavin yeah, kind yeah. of guy, right? <laughs> do you guys know? Do you guys get flack from the Edison camp or the uh, uh, Hawking but, camp? But or let's anything? face it, who doesn't get flack from the Edison camp? For capital infringement. Yeah. Well, on Edison, we we did do the research. It turns out he really was evil. So that's okay. well, and that, and I agree with you. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Hawking from from everything I can tell has a really terrific sense of humor. So that's probably why he got cast as the villain in that one issue. Mm-hmm. Just because I knew that if he ever found out, he'd probably laugh at it. Well, but I mean, do you have people that go, how dare you do that to Stephen Hawking? Stephen Hawking is a great, brilliant man. And, 
you're just being, you know, bastards towards him or anything like that. You, do you get that kind of stuff? Or I do people uh, generally just point. laugh it off? Yeah, I, I think that, yeah, well, like Seth said, we haven't heard anything. I mean, everyone, they, they think Lovecraft is hilarious here. They think, uh, apparently, the Hawking gag is probably the most favorite one that we've ever done. That's, so. That was a favorite here when we reviewed it on the on mm-hmm. the show before. Cause... Which is funny. <laughs> Brian and I were talking about this earlier, and I, my perception of what makes a good comic is so off from what the average comic book reader wants. And, and I know that anyway going in, but I remember do, we were, we were doing that, that Mars gag. I was complaining constantly that we had to do something different because it was the stupidest thing ever, having him write that out. And it was the most popular thing we ever did. And at that point, I was like, no, dude, I don't know nothing. I'll, 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 you know, I'll help you go with the basic storyline. But after that, it's all you because clearly I suck. <laughs> <laughs> when... When we get to page seven, I guess something that struck me now, Robo has eyelids that he can use for, like, different kind of expressions. But, you know, he's popping his head. Uh, Lovecraft says something about monsters are out there. The hordes are out there in the night. And Robo's popping his head out, and he's like, what, like monsters? And he's really kind of looking around. Again, going back to a character that really has no pupils, he has no mouth, is it difficult to express emotions or feelings or, or things through this through this automaton? Um, you know, it's mostly, it's a lot of body language with Robo. And, you know, obviously using the eyes to, to great effect. But most of it is, you know, how are his shoulders set? How is he standing? You know, what's his movement like? And um, it's funny, outside, outside of comic book influences, you know, most of my, most of the art that influenced me it was, was, was uh, animation. And that's always exact, you know, all movement in anima- animation is exaggerated, so right. it actually doesn't make it too difficult. Um, uh, you know, like that 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 panel you were commenting on before, where Robo's stomping towards the door. Um, I actually took that off of an old sketch where I was just doing some kind of like a like a flip animation kind of thing mm. and just exaggerating the movement. Um, so yeah, he's actually not. It's not too hard. Um, occasionally, I find myself destroyed. You know, if, if Robo looks like a stiff mannequin in a, in a panel, then I obviously did something wrong. So okay. that in mind. So I would try him, like, he kind of bobs his head a bit like a, you know, like a bird looking at things. So he'll perk up and scrunch down and, you know, just, just try to kind of have him constantly moving. So it's, you know, you can get, get the, uh, the emotion that way. The, the next couple pages that play out is really, I don't know. Um, Lovecraft going all spastic about, you know, is this location secure? And Fort trying to say, hey, look, we really want to talk with Tesla. And Robo just trying to explain to them, hey, he's not here. Brian, can you talk a little bit about the timing of, of these couple of pages? And, uh, well, how do you mean? like? Well, it seems like, I don't know, it, it seems like there's a lot of slow moments uh, going through through that section. Not that, I mean, depending on how you read it and and, and how you go through it, it, it kind of seems mm. to just slow down at a moment when things really should be, uh, I don't know, a little bit more frenzied, I guess, as far as why, why they need to speak with Tesla. Yeah, the, the challenge uh, of writing the, the, that sequence, actually, was trying to keep everyone in character and also, well... The real thing is that 
Fort is lying to Lovecraft and trying to work his way through this conversation uh, with Robo to get Tesla without trying to tip off uh, Lovecraft mm. so that the monster in Lovecraft doesn't <clears throat> find out that Fort knows so that at the end they can you know solve the problem, but it doesn't work out that way. Okay. But, yeah, it was balancing sort of Fort's reluctance to, uh, you know, spill all the beans effectively, but still move the conversation forward. So, yeah, I think you're right. It does slow down a bit here. I mean, and that's not, I'm not trying to, you know, discredit yeah, the, know. the issue or anything. It's just, you know, a, a, I think a legitimate criticism. Mm. Yeah, no, I would agree. Uh, but then now that you explained in, in how, what Ford is doing, it makes a lot more sense, I think, in the, in the sense of things and the fact of, let's get Lovecraft out of the room, let's get the kids out of the room so we can really kind of talk kind of thing uh, plays out. Have we, uh, for, in the first issue, in the first volume, did we ever get to take a really good look at Tesla from the front? Did we ever see? I don't, I don't recall no. that. No, we, we haven't shown him yet. Okay, because it just struck me that here's this, this great couple of panels where Fort says uh, something to the effect about this society, and I'll mention that again, but did he ever talk to you about Tunguska? And then we see this flashback moment, and we just see the back of, of Tesla saying, Robo, I want you to promise me something. If some strange, crazy people should ever come to you talking about Tunguska, you know, shoot him. Yeah. And I just, I found that just interesting that we saw him from the back, and I was trying to remember if we'd ever seen his face in the series. No, not yet. Uh, Is there... when, we, when we finally do reveal him, he will be David Bowie. Awesome. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, yeah, that... That also that flashback just cracks me up, and I and I guess that's one of the reasons that I like Atomic Robo a lot is you're tr you're throwing in some serious pulpy stories with some very serious light comedic moments. Yeah, and it's almost a little Back to the Future reference as well. You know where Biff, uh, you know, if some crazy wild eyed scientist or a kid come looking for this book, you're supposed to kill him. Yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. Absolutely, stole that line. And in fact, earlier in the issue, when we see the exterior of Tesla Dine Industries, actually it's later when we see it, it's supposed to have a sign that. I'm sorry, I think we lost you there. Brian, get cut off? Uh, he might have. Brian, are you there? Uh oh. Major spoilers, technical difficulties. La, la, so how la, about la, that local la, sports la, team? La, la. <laughs> I, can, I can juggle while we wait. Uh, <laughs> hey, we should play word association. <laughs> <laughs> We've got this thing uh, called word association. Yeah. Where we associate words. Hold on just a second. Let me try to get him back in. <laughs> da, da, That's da, the magic da, 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 da. The magic of editing. You guys still recorded? Yeah. Hey, oh, Brian, cool. I think we lost you there. Yeah, I don't know what happened. You were just talking about um, um, Back to the Future and how there's a future panel where you were going to reference something, and that's where you got cut off. Oh, yeah. Off. Uh, on, on the outside of test industry, we were going to have like a, a little uh, subheading, 24-hour scientific services, which is oh, what yeah. it says on Doc Van. But then uh, I think Scott... That makes no sense to say that because it's a little. Yeah, that 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 was that was would have been an awesome reference, except for the fact that Robo keeps telling Charles and Fort that they're closed yeah. and should go away. Right. Yeah. Right. 
but I do like the one that we do see eventually. Science while you wait. Yeah, that was yeah. that was that was the movie prize. Yeah, that was. <laughs> um, Widencliff, do you think that people who know Tesla, do you think your average reader knows about his uh, death ray tower? I don't think our average reader knows a goddamn thing about Nikola Tesla. <laughs> really? <laughs> Um, Let, let's take yeah, a poll. We, Matthew, how much do you know about Nikola Tesla? Uh, you guys are not our average reader, though. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I believe he had a phobia about human hair. Oh, yes. Yeah, he didn't like being touched. did not like yeah. to touch hair. And uh, something about uh, working for Edison and they all wanted to kill each other and dogs and cats living together. <laughs> what about you, Rodrigo? Do you know about Nikola Tesla? Um... What I know is Death Ray tried to get uh, free energy for everyone and was largely shot down by his competitors. Right. And okay. and was largely insane. <laughs> maybe some people would say, say that. Did you guys, Brian, and, and maybe even Scott, too, did you guys both do a lot of research into Tesla? Oh, yeah. And it's kind of constant and ongoing. Um, he's just such an amazing... Yeah, he, he, he's, he's wilder than fiction. Um, yeah. It's just, I mean, like he was trying with the with a Wardenclyffe. Um, you know, he was trying to do wireless energy transmission. Mm -hmm. Well, what are they what are they doing today in the 21st century? Well, they're putting solar panels in orbit and you know setting microwave beam, they're beaming the energy down from space. Yeah, in um, fact, they've got. Have you heard of this induction charging that they're doing with like cell phones and electronic gizmos, where you just put yeah. your device on a pad? And it just yep. the electricity just gets sucked in through wirelessly. It's very it is Tesla uh, mm -hmm. inventions. Yeah. And yeah, it is exactly. It's funny that that kind of technology is not all that new. It's just the idea of it being applied to non novelty items. Like my my daughter has a pair of uh, night lights that work exactly on that. Oh, really? Principle. Cool. You know, there's a pair of plastic slugs that light up, and you put them in the. It looks like a Wii remote charger, basically, but there's mm. no physical connection between. Oh, cool. Yeah, but it, it's interesting. Like all these, all these ideas and concepts he has, the science didn't always exist to make them happen. But for the most part, everything he came up with was possible um, theoretically at any point, and now is becoming possible from a technological point of view. But I mean, if you think about it, um, it without Tesla, there we wouldn't have AC electricity, right. and uh, you know, if we were if we were lucky, you know, Springfield, Ohio, would just be getting electricity. You know, last year. <laughs> as, uh, as the relations for direct direct current was set up, you know, I mean, he's really in many indirect ways responsible for the modern world that we live in. And who could forget if it wasn't the battle between him and Edison, we'd never have a rock band called ACDC. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> or t Tesla. Yeah, or Tesla. Huh? Who could forget them? Uh, right. right. <laughs> you, you make a lot of references to this teaming up of uh, Tesla, Fort, uh, Lovecraft, Lovecraft's father, Annie Oakley, and Houdini. <laughs> Are we ever going to see anything like that? That would be a heck of a... Yeah. I guess whenever I read uh, Atomic Robot, I I, I, pull, I feel a lot of references of Doc Savage and other pulpy things, and seeing these uh, adventurers of, of history team up together would be pretty awesome. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, uh, yeah, it's one of those things where, on, on, in theory, it sounds like that would be an excellent idea. Um well, on one hand, on the one hand, there's just the time involved. You know, it's going to take us, assuming Robo continues to sell well, it's going to take us years just to tell the Robo stories that ah. we have, and, mm -hmm. and never mind all the backup stuff. Right. Uh, 
I, I mean, I suppose we could farm out uh, the, the work and whatnot, but also like things like things like doing that or 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 really showing Tesla interacting with Robo, they kind of almost act um, because they, because they are such teasers. They 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 make you want to know more and they make you more interested, and they almost kind of ruin it by revealing it. So we're not even sure if you're ever really going to see. I mean, as of right now, the plan is that you're never really going to see Tesla right. uh, doing anything. He's just sort of there like the Charlie Brown parent, more or less. I did talk to yeah, I did, uh, we did talk about doing um, just a series of kind of like uh, old photographs of, of Tesla and his science team and whatnot. No comic, per se, but just like a, a mm. pin-up kind of poster kind of thing, because I, I have a hard time really resisting that stuff, so... Um, convention poster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> convention exclusive. You, there is one though that I had scratching my head, and I, I guess I didn't spend the time looking it up. Who is Master Wong that they refer to? Uh, that would be. Let me get his name right. Uh, what was it? Now I can't think of it. Hold on, I'm looking it up. Okay. But basically, it is uh, Wong Fei Hong's dad, Wong Kei Ying. That's uh, right. Okay. Okay. So for for those who don't know, uh, Wong Fei Hong is or yeah is a uh, famous the number one uh, hero uh, of China person from uh, Chinese history. He's he uh, just look him up. He's the guy in uh, that in all the uh, Once Upon a Time in, in China movies. Yeah, and uh, he's also a little kid in Iron Monkey. I mean, he's all over the place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, cool. Uh, yeah, and, and I don't know. For some reason, I just find his father to be an interesting figure in a lot of these movies. When, so he's the old, old wizened kung fu master of the team. Yeah. When they finally get uh, Lovecraft out of the room, uh, Fort explains what happened with Tunguska, and apparently there was an alien in, an invasion or an alien being coming down, and they had to use uh, uh, Wardenclyffe uh, to send the beam to deflect the, the being, and, and somehow the, the feedback caused the Tunguska explosion. Rodrigo, do you know what the Tunguska explosion is? Mm-mm. Okay, Matthew. Um, I well, I guess I'm a big this, science nerd myself. This is just yes. off the top of my head, but I believe it was 1908, and there was a mysterious blast in Siberia. And no one knows what caused it. Yeah, they they think some some people might think that it was a meteorite exploding about a half mile up from the from the surface oh. that flattened out the trees. And it was aliens. I've yeah, seen them. Apparently, it was aliens. Apparently, Brian, it, you've done your research and, and explained one of the biggest mysteries in history. They showed up and they give us a chiclet. You said that we are not the typical robo atomic robo readers. Who are the the typical atomic robo readers? What is that demographic? Yeah, you know, I probably shouldn't even have said that because as I'm thinking about it, we we seem to have a kind of a weird cross section of everybody. Um, I would say the average. Age is somewhere in the twenties, from what I've seen at conventions, anyway. Okay. Um, uh, older, I, you know, we seem to be get on the kid angle. It seems like eight or nine years old seems to be the the break in age from the emails we get from excited parents who are like, <laughs> "Oh, my kids turned into a comic geek, yay!" Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, it, it, it's been odd. It's every it's been everything from um, uh, you know geek girls from high school to old school. Middle-aged uh, fanboys. To, I don't know. I, certain people, I guess, it just seems to strike a chord. Um, 
but I don't know why. <laughs> we did notice that a lot of our readers seem to be women. Um, I, would, I would say close to half. Wow. Of the people that uh, that I meet at shows. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how well comic book uh, convention attendees reflect the actual people buying the book, but. Um, but yeah, the, the people I meet, I'd say close to half are, are women. And um, other than that, though, yeah, there really, I guess there really is nothing that kind of ties them all together. I think the reason I made that comment earlier was because Brian got an email uh, last week uh, that was just very funny. That just basically says, you know, you keep mentioning this Nikola Tesla fellow. Who was he exactly? And then Brian's basic response was to just send this person a link to Google and say, you know, figure it out. Yeah, nice. <laughs> well, and I, I, maybe that's one of the great things about Wikipedia right now is if you don't know who Charles Fort is, you know, that's what I had to do. I had to go up to the wiki and find out who he was. And and then once I knew Fort, oh, 40 and 40 and times, now it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, I, yeah. maybe that's a little bit more added enjoyment onto the onto the series. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think there the 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 best part about it is there's there's going to be a handful of things that you're in on that's it, part of it is actually learning it along with robo and the other part is oh i actually know who hp lovecraft is right. and that and that gives you that 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 little extra bit of enjoyment of this is one that i didn't have to look up i actually know who they're talking about yeah it's it's kind of um you kind of get the same feeling as uh um, I haven't heard, I haven't seen the new well it's not out here yet but I know some people have seen previews of the new the new Star Trek movie and there's a lot of little things that old school fans would know about and like the, you know it's just fun to see the little nods here and there and it's kind of since we don't have that long continuity you kind of get that same feeling that when you're in on the historical bit of knowledge when you read the story. Well, it it makes the universe that that much better of a place I think, and you're right it does make it seem more more rich and full. Especially when it explains that uh, the alien now is the alien Lovecraft or is the alien inside Lovecraft? Are we looking at some black electroid Buckaroo Bonsai type stuff going on here? Yeah, yeah his real name is John Big Booty uh. and HP uh, <laughs> Big Booty. <laughs> That's Big Booty. Damn it! <laughs> Small so, um, The ro- well, the robot, the monster. It's inside him, and it is him at the same time. It's a. Uh, it's non-Euclidean. It, uh, Brian, you go ahead. <laughs> I can't even begin. To uh, basically, it, it becomes more clear as the series goes on because the people, uh, largely Robo, starts to figure it out over the years. But um, this creature, this being, whatever it is, exists. It's a higher dimensional being that technically exists outside of our universe, and it intersects our universe at specific. <laughs> points throughout time. Ah. One of these specific points happened to be in the Tunguska uh, region of Siberia in 1908. Another point happened to be H.P. Lovecraft's 1926. And another point will be in issue three, and then another one in issue four, and then another one in issue five. Okay, so you're talking about, you know, I thought reading this that, hey, maybe this entire thing where we've got to go chase down the cephalopod Lovecraft, that we've got to, uh, that this is all going to take place in 1926 on one given night, but you're indicating that this is something again is going to be one of those uh, decade-spanning stories. Yeah, this is actually going to be our our weirdest story as far as time goes. By the time it all ends. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think this goes back to what I was saying about it being a big learning experience for us at the same time that we're actually working on it, and that you know everyone loved the hopping around time 
in volume one, but we did get some complaints that were like, well, there's no big story. It's just this little whatever. And then in volume two, the other half of the people complained that, well, it all takes place in World War II and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, I think I had kind of made that comment. You know, at, at that point, we pretty much just turned the Internet off. And so, <laughs> yeah. You know, okay. So in this case, we've got one story element, but it runs through uh, four different time periods. Um, so it's a little bit of both. Hopefully, the best parts of both. I don't, I don't know. Um, well, which which do yeah, you like telling? Which do you like telling better? Do you like telling a, a story set in a specific time period, like the World War II from Volume Two, or do you like the what you're doing with with Volume Three and Volume One? Um, from a story point of view, I think it. Yeah, I, I don't know if one's better than the other. Um, I think they're both a lot of fun. You can tell. I think you can tell a more in-depth story if you stay in one time period. But well, then again, I'm a, I, I have to prove myself wrong with what we're doing with with this volume because we're telling one big story. It just happens to take many, many decades to to resolve itself. Um, I don't know. From my point of view, <laughs> it's much easier to stick in one decade because for every issue this time, I've had to put in a solid day's worth of uh, research and gathering photo reference, and I, I must have three dozen folder subdivided by decades uh, and, <laughs> and then whatever for, for, for volume three, because obviously the, the styles change, the clothing styles change, the technology changes, the architecture changes. Um, so I, yeah, I spent, I spent a good couple hours initially just looking for period specific photographs of New York city to, mm -hmm. to get an idea of what would be at that location where we're putting uh Tesla's lab, what would New York City look like at that point? Oh, remember, we, we even had Jeff scout the location physically. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Yeah, we sent our letterer to go look specific, because there was a building that was period appropriate um, that was obviously built prior to this happening, but then there's been so much reconstruction in that area that basically we left the street layout the same. It's funny, you never see, you'll never see this in the comic, but in our head we had to map it all out. Um, where we kept the, the, the street layout the same and essentially just built a giant Ghostbusters headquarter oh, <laughs> right cool. on the corner, oh, cool. complete with, with fire truck garage doors. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, we do, a, we do a lot of research. I mean, the World War II one was insane. Uh, I ended up buying a photo archive that was a couple of gigs in size and uh, just getting, uh, you know, outfits. It's, it's, it's odd because a lot of, Things won't, no one will notice, and especially with a cartoony style like mine, as long as something vaguely looks like it fits, people are willing to accept that. But Brian and I are both big history nerds, so we like to get it as close to correct as possible. Um, and heck, some of our some of our readers are are, are sticklers for that too. Uh, the very first issue, Helsingar's henchmen were carrying. Uh, British Enfield rifles. Well, they weren't, but everyone assumed they were Nazis, so they were all, which they weren't. So it was kind of appropriate in the logic of our world. But, but a lot of people noticed those little discrepancies in the uniform and the equipment and whatnot. Wow. So we, we yeah, right. Wow. <laughs> and I thought I was a big nerd, knowing all these science stuff. Uh, well, yeah, Stephen, you are a big nerd. Thank you. When you when you put your when you put your stories and your art and, and whatnot out there, you know, you you basically open yourself up for for. Uh, you know, inspection at the at the microscopic level, and you know you can't take uh, take any of it too seriously. But you need to also be able to figure out what criticism is good and useful, and what's just someone being a jackass. Well, yeah, basically. that's what I was going to say. How, where do you get to the point where somebody's actually got a legitimate concern, like 
hey, in you know 1926, Lovecraft was actually sick at home and wouldn't have traveled out to the point where you guys really messed up on panel 27 when everyone knows that the suit had four buttons instead of three buttons. Uh, yeah, um, I don't know. I guess you just kind of build up a... a you, you, you just kind of learn to gauge that stuff through experience. Um, okay. I, I, I remember before we started doing this, uh, Mike Oming, who uh, until recently was doing Powers with Bendis, Right. Um, well, actually, they might still be doing it because I don't think an issue is going to pop. But, uh, you know, he, he told me that basically, you know, you got to either develop a really thick skin or don't read any of the reviews unless you have someone who can proofread it for you first because people are going to tear you apart. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and then it's true, you know, people, they, they do. And it, it, you, you kind of have to, no matter how much you tell yourself, it's, you know, it's just, not personal. You can't help but take it personally. But on the other hand, you know, sometimes you get some good, uh, you get some good info out of that. Right. Um, or you know, occasionally you agree. Like occasionally, we've had to, um, on the art side anyway. I've I've done something. I can't think of a specific example, but I've done something on a page simply because it was quick and it got the job done because we had a deadline to meet. Um, you know, where I could have done a couple of other things that might have looked better, but there simply wasn't time to to, to invest in that without mm-hmm. playing things for other people and making their lives horrible. So, you know, occasionally someone will catch me out on something like that. But, uh, um, but yeah, there's just, you take the good with the bad, and, and, and you have to compare those criticisms and those critiques to what you're trying to do with the story, yeah. what you're trying to, because no one knows except for two of us exactly, you know, ultimately where we want to go with it, what Robo's motivations are for things. So a lot of, a lot of criticism, it's on a surface level, it's useful, but it's mostly, but a lot of it comes from them not knowing mm-hmm. all this background detail that we have not had time to explain to anyone yet. Mm-hmm. Brian, are you, do you take criticism the same way? I mean, you've been doing stuff a long time with, 8-bit theater, do you come in to criticism with a different approach or a different outlook? Um, well, criticism of 8-bit theater I take pretty lightly because, I mean, I'll be the first to admit, hey, that is nowhere near perfect work. Yeah. I'll even help you here. I should be better. Uh, with Robo, I take a, a more careful approach. Um, there's, I don't know, a lot of the crit- we've gotten... Very few uh, negative reviews, and for that I am quite happy. Uh, the majority of them tend to just be, I, don't, I know this might sound incredibly arrogant, but wrong. Uh, well, no, I mean, yeah. What was that? Well, I was going to say, you and I kind of had a little uh, back-and-forth discussion up on the message board about my critique of the last of the last volume. And, you know, oh, it's, yeah, just, yeah. it's just how uh, I perceived it and how you perceived it, and once we kind of think about it and explain it, then it makes... You know, it makes perfect sense. Oh yeah, I wasn't—I wasn't even talking about that because I can see where you're coming from. So that's cool. Right. Uh, the one thing that that struck that the one that always sticks out in my memory was this early review of the very first issue of the first volume, and the whole review is a, is just this screed against us because uh, we had the audacity to not show these Nazi soldiers as just the absolute epitome of evil on earth. Uh, oh, yeah. Now, as, as Scott said, they weren't even Nazis. Not that it matters. I mean, you can think they're Nazis and the story's not affected at all. But I don't know. That just seems like missing the point by such a wide margin mm-hmm. is to to focus on that. 
as opposed to what the actual story is about, what it's trying to accomplish. And other negative reviews aren't quite to that ridiculous extent, but there there is a certain, like Scott was saying, um, they'll, they'll critique things that we're not really concerned with. Uh, this, this one reviewer, he's oh, I can't remember his name. Anyway, uh, he says he, he you know he's trying to like Robo, we just can't get into it because you know the characters are kind of light or it's too fluffy a book. Mm-hmm. And I can see where he's coming from because. I mean, that's what—that's kind of our intention. Just uh, intention is to, uh, you know, tell these fun, light action stories. Yeah. And so, you know, this thing, well, you know, totally understandable. Of course, you're not going to like it as much as if it was, you know, the sort of thing you were interested in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not to ignore that guy's criticism. You know, he obviously is correct, has a point. But at the same time, it's not that we're failing to do something. It's just that we're not doing that what thing. What he wants you guys to do. Yeah. 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 I guess as we get get towards the end of the issue, uh, HP Horror from Beyond Space escapes, and, uh, you know, Atomic Robo looks up and just in this defeatist kind of look just says, ah, horse feathers. <laughs> and, and Brian, did you, I mean, did you pick that because that was a, a word of the time period, or are you trying to show here's a young young Robo in the language that he might use, and then as time progresses, he maybe becomes a little bit more hardened and realistic to the point where he might utter an ah crap kind of moment? Oh uh, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of both. Um, on the one hand, uh, I believe in my research somewhere I found that Tesla abhorred uh, actual cursing. Mm. And so mm. while Robo's living under his roof, he would obviously kind of incorporate that into his own you know habits. He would just be used to not actually using curses. Uh, also, horse feathers was a common sort of expletive, not like, you know, something you'd bleep on television, but just a, sort of their version of all crap. Right, right. From, you know, right. Uh, and he, he let loose a few others. I think Applesauce was one uh, <laughs> on nuts that came into uh, use back then. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, but it, as, as the years progress, he uses those less. Okay. I just thought it was, it's just one of those moments where it's just like, you know, one of those ah crap moments, and then yeah, and then yeah. I just thought about the words and the language and and how it evolved in the different time periods, and it, it's it's interesting to to uh, write Robo across these eras, and partly that's why I like doing flashbacks and stories that jump through time because I can you know play with Robo as a youngster and play that against you know how he's grown up, and you can kind of just see the growth of the character very quickly, mm-hmm. but just by his use of language and, and his bearing does. Does Robo become more cynical over time, or does he not? I mean, he's got feelings, right? I mean, he's a feeling robot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But does he become more cynical because he realizes that, you know, I'm going to outlive all of you guys, and what's the point of of doing all this? I don't, I don't think he becomes more cynical, per se. He becomes more cautious uh, emotionally, I think, and the, in terms of the relationships he has with people and the the causes he associates himself with. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we we see him in World War II, where he's very much, you know, uh, a medal, you know, Captain America doing his patriotic duty. Right. Uh, and then I believe I believe one of the backup stories kind of touched on him in Korea, um, where it's like he's kind of sick and tired of doing it, but he still feels obligated to do it. Mm-hmm. And then on Vietnam rolls around, he's kind of like, this is ridiculous. Um, you know, I'm, I'm turning into what Tesla did not want me to become. So he gets a little more uh, world weary. Is not the right way of putting it. Uh, I would say uh, socially conscious. Okay. Yeah. 
um, you know, as anyone does, as they grow up and mature, you know, they're 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 generally they learn more, their views, their horizons broaden somewhat. Um, Robo has more time to for that kind of stuff to happen, but um, but yeah, and eventually he does have to deal with uh, the fact that the people he knows are dying. But you, he also has to he learns to to cope with that because you know essentially. If you took away the metal skin, Robo is just a work-a-day schmo, and, you know, he is human at heart. Um, but, you know, if he was human, we'd, the first piano that we dropped on him would be gruesome and gory and not funny at all. So, <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> um, Most of the issue, again, uh, Scott, we were talking about the horizontal layout, and then we get to the final splash page where Robo's yeah. opening up the weapons cache, and it's just like, hey, I've got the the best plan that's out there. <laughs> you know, that's a. I think if you're talking about using the vertical, that splash page is really you know hits home of oh yeah, it's kick ass time. Yeah, yeah, because you can use it really effectively like that. It's funny. I kind of um, uh, the the idea of really starting to like I said, we want to stick basically with the horizontal storyboard sort of thing because it's kind of vaguely cinematic and you know all our inspirations for the for for the book are, are basically movies. Um, so it's kind of neat to kind of tie all that together, but uh, it wasn't until I just took a little break from Robo and did um, a one shot with uh, the Human Torch from for Marvel for their their 70th, 70th anniversary cool. celebration this year. Yeah. Um, and in that one, um, it, it just wasn't possible to do the horizontal stuff. Um, just again because some pages called for so many panels that. Uh, you know they would have they would have been half an inch tall and you would have missed so, so <laughs> right, it's kind of forced. Right to revert back to kind of more traditional page layouts. Mm-hmm. And it was as I was doing that that I, you know, kind of said, well, you know, we should probably, I should probably work on developing a kind of a hybrid here. Um, and I had already laid out and paneled all the pages for the third issue before starting the Marvel thing. So as I was working along, I kept finding bits where I was like, whoa, if I relayed this out, it could probably work a little bit better here. But unfortunately... Um, as much fun as the Marvel project was, it, it, it ended up putting me behind, uh, kind of behind the eight ball with Robo. Mm. Um, so this, there was no time to relay out anything on that issue. But uh, um, I think you'll see as time goes on, it, get, it gets a bit more dynamic again. Um, yeah. How, how far ahead do you guys work? Uh, Brian, do you go ahead and write the entire five-issue mini, or do you write it you know, based on... Let's write issue one and get it out the door and see how it sells, and then try to adjust after that. Oh Lord, no! Uh, I, just, <laughs> I just keep writing. Uh, like right now, I'm, I'm working on the first issue of the next volume. Okay, cool. And what about you, Scott? About how far in advance are you per issue and well, release? I like to be about half a month ahead of where I am now. So if I was about halfway into the fourth issue, I would feel pretty comfortable um, and not have to not not feel like I had to get a page done every single day of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, if we can get, yeah, if we can get three issues done, and, and if I can be working or starting the fourth issue by the time the first issue hits the stores, that gives us plenty of time to get all the artwork. It's part of the reason we use the mini-series format. I think someone on your on your, uh, yeah. your website had asked. Yeah, Actually, Kirk yeah. Warren, he said, what are the, the prospects of an Atomic Robo ongoing in the future, or are you both yeah, happy with the mini-series model? Yeah, no, prospects are zero, actually. Um, <laughs> uh, originally, that was the idea when Brian came to me. And I said, my argument was like, well, if I'm going to be doing 
pencils and ink, I, I, I can't do it. I can't produce the art that quick, or I could produce the art that quickly, but the book will look like utter crap. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we talked about it more, kind of dawned on us that um, the miniseries format meant that we could tell exactly the story we wanted to in the length we wanted to, and we'd never have to worry about a filler issue. We'd never have to worry about, if we play, if we did it correctly, we'd never have to worry about being late on something because we would, you know, we, by, by creating our own buffers, we could make sure that, you know, that late, late is the new on time with, with Marvel and DC. You may yeah. have noticed. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the Human Torch book I just did, it was solicited to come out in April. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> in fact, it was solicited before I even got a script. So it's kind of like, oh, oh crap. Yeah. Uh, no pressure there, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. So, and 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 the best, even the absolute best ongoing monthly comic. If you're gonna do it monthly, you're gonna have issues eventually that are filler or crap, or everyone, someone just has to fail. Everyone has to phone it in just to get it done. And the quality of what you're working on is gonna suffer, no matter. You, you can't avoid it. Eventually, it's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I personally, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big fan of the miniseries format. I feel that a lot of other books would would really benefit. From just going into a miniseries format, and I think Atomic, you can you can hold up Atomic Robo to a lot of these people and and say, hey, look, here's the miniseries, the miniseries done right, and here's all that it's doing for this book. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's great. I think it works out really well for Atomic Robo. Yeah, and I, there, there are some cases I guess where it might not work, but um, well, you you look at Marvel and DC. Like I just read the um, Iron Man Enter the Mandarin uh, trade, which right. is what five five, six issues. It was a nice little self-contained story. And the great thing about that is you don't need to worry yourself with the, you know, how many years of Iron Man continuity. You just, you, they give you enough information that you understand who Tony Stark is. He's got this suit and he's going to go fight a bad guy kind of thing. And it's an early adventure and you get, you get that. And it's just a really good ride. Um, uh, also the, the, was it Patsy, Patsy Klein Hellcat? Uh, mm-hmm. It was a ton of fun and the art was beautiful and the writing was really good. But you could never, you know, there's not enough, there's not enough meat there to have an ongoing series. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like you know, uh, both Marvel and DC do this, where they'll, they'll, they'll start a, a new series with something that just doesn't have the legs to carry it, whereas it would have, where, you know, like The Defenders, um, that's, a, that's a, a chronically awful selling book when it's coming out, you know, but you could probably do some really awesome quality uh, miniseries with those characters and those scenarios. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I think that's the format's much better, and it allows us to take a break of a couple of months between each volume, so that yeah. we can build up the art. And then, because I'm always deviating from the script, Brian has to go through and rework the dialogue. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, he, he may be mostly working on volume four point one, but uh, uh, you know, every day I, I turn in a page, and every day he's got to rewrite a whole bunch of shit. <laughs> you you had mentioned. Um... Brian about maybe Brian I forget which one of you had mentioned it something about um you know sales and getting sales out there are sales really good for atomic robo uh, I think so yeah I mean it, I mean <laughs> with the with diamond's new change in minimum orders is there ever a concern that you're going to start into say this current volume and by the time you hit uh issue number three or you're getting ready for issue number four Diamond says sorry guys you're not meeting your minimums no, you're out of here we sell well yeah, above the minimum, so okay. we're pretty good. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're fine on that, and you, you don't want to get a start on Diamond. You really don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think a lot of people have some strong feelings about uh, Diamond e- either way. Um, oh, yeah. 
<laughs> so one of our one of the other people up on the website. This is more of a of a Brian question again. Uh, I had already asked it earlier in the show, but Magic Condoran says, "Is Eight Bit Theater really coming to an end?" And then he follows that up with, "Any plans for an ongoing Tuesday Thursday Saturday project?" Uh, yes, it is going to end, and I don't. I mean, I do plan to do another web comic. I'm already doing Warbot and Accounting, which is pretty much weekly. Mm-hmm. I do that with uh, Zach Finfrock. He does some of the uh, backup stories in Robo. And I do plan on doing other web comics that would update uh, also weekly or maybe twice a week, maybe even three times a week. I don't have specific plans, but that is, you know, I am looking forward to doing it. Yes. Have you guys ever thought about maybe taking some of these uh, robo backup stories and putting them onto a, a weekly or a, a tri-weekly website and trying to monetize it that way? Ooh, ooh, that was my idea. My idea had it first, mine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I, uh, um, we actually recently had this comic, this conversation with Red Five Comics, and mm-hmm. right now the individual issues of Robo um, sell well enough to, to to justify doing it, um, and they obviously, if nothing, if nothing else, individual comic books are advertising for the trade paperbacks. You know, they're the right. kind of like kind of like how you know movies and theaters. Not too many people go to see, but they're good advertising for the excellent DVD sales you're going to have a few months later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's basically how comics work. Um, eventually, um, yeah, we have we have we have quite a few people who want to do robo backup stories, and. Either there's not time because Brian has to write these these scripts, and you wouldn't think writing a three or four page story would take that long, but it's really difficult to have a beginning, middle, and an end in four pages. <laughs> you're, oh, absolutely, it, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's more. It's probably probably more difficult than writing your standard twenty two page story. Um, and I just get to sit back and laugh as, as he often <laughs> does when I'm working. But like like page one of that issue we were just looking through panel one says you know wide aerial shot of the island of Manhattan. I mean I could have I could have mailed him a pipe bomb for that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I I spent an entire day on that stupid panel. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I didn't say any detail. But um, so we have so we have people more more people than we can handle who want to do backup stories, and then we have a, a couple of people who are interested who are um, really good artists, but their styles are not don't fit with the vibe of Robo very mm-hmm. well. But what we were talking about doing is kind of starting some online stories also um, with myself doing a couple also to kind of uh, you know with the with us old school print comic book readers. There's kind of a snobby attitude toward the uh, webcomic yeah. sometimes so hopefully by doing some myself we'll add some legitimacy or the impression of legitimacy uh, uh, to doing it but uh yeah. but yeah so atomic uh, robo's yeah. doing really well do you guys have to still crank up the the marketing engine or does it pretty much run itself or do you guys have to find out oh gosh we have to do another freaking podcast with these major spoilers uh. guys <laughs> Yeah, we, we um, hate to talk about what geniuses we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? It's it's hard. It's hard. It's like going to conventions. It's like, yeah, it's a lot of work and it's exhausting, but pretty much you sit at a table all day and people come looking for you generally to tell you that you're awesome. I mean, well, that's <laughs> I gonna be company. Company. my wife. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, then that kind of uh, brings up... No, go ahead. Finish. Oh, no. I was, I was uh, going to say it's to be kind of a self-perpetuating thing at this point, mm-hmm. but I still met plenty of people on Free Comic Book Day 
who had not or who had either heard of robo and hadn't read it or had never heard of it before so yeah we still need to do you know it's 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 a small book and it's a it's a big in well it's a big world out there and it's hard to get everyone exposed to everything so you're constantly working but luckily now that we have the books out in our hands you know they they, they act as promotion i guess um and frankly I, I don't know i think we like doing the podcast yeah well, we're glad that you guys came on. And speaking Absolutely. of that of that free comic book day edition, uh, Red Five put the entire issue online up for people to download and and read for free. Because quite frankly, the place where I went to go pick up my free comic books on on Saturday, they only had the gold sponsors, and that was it. They didn't mm-hmm. have they didn't have uh, uh, what is it, uh, Doctor Dinosaur and Atomic Robo. Uh, <laughs> but people can go up and read that up there on the Red. Well, Five. wait, hold on. There's a comic called Doctor Dinosaur. Well, that's who he meets. Oh, oh, that's that was the that was the issue of Atomic Robo. Yeah, yeah. How did I not hear about this? Well, obviously they didn't get on the podcast ah. before Free Comic Book Day. <laughs> uh, you guys have a couple of T-shirts. You got a couple of um, uh, trades already. Volume one and Volume two is out on trade already. Yep. I also saw, and this is why people need to go to AtomicRobo.com. An Atomic Robo statue is coming out. Nice. Yes. <laughs> Please, yeah, please tell me that this is like a 14-inch tall statue. <laughs> no. <laughs> what, 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 what can you tell us about about this atomic robo statue that you've already got one sold already? And is it actually atomic powered? <laughs> right. Uh, it's about five inches tall. Uh-huh. It'll be uh, painted in full color. Um, it will be atomic powered, so it'll cost thirty thousand dollars. Excellent. <laughs> Well, I better only and, get two then. Yeah. And uh, it'll be available uh, online only later this year. Uh, our first run will be pretty limited because we just want to gauge, you know, general interest. And uh, from there, you know, depending on how they sell, you know, we'll, maybe we'll print more. Maybe we'll make them available through Diamond and regular comic shops. Right now, this is just a really limited run kind of experiment. Well, uh, listeners to the Major Spoilers podcast, go up to the Major Spoilers website and let us know, are you going to buy an Atomic Robo statue and help these guys judge whether they should do a run of 50 or a run of 5,000? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Gentlemen, I really want to thank you for your time. I don't know if you were expecting to talk this long about Atomic Robo. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Um... Where else can we find your stuff? What websites can people go to? That's a good idea. Well, uh, all comic book shops. Of, well, actually, that's a lie. Not all comic book shops. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> Brutal retail market out there. Um, but you can order us from your comic book shops. And even though Diamond is going to tell you that it's out of stock, it's not out of stock. So make sure your retailer places the order anyway. Um, or for those people who don't live near a comic book shop, uh, heavyink.com is an awesome online uh, comic shop. And you can, it's basically like, uh, it's like the Netflix of comics, except ah, cool. you don't have to read. Um, you can set up some, you know, key, uh, subscription queues, and you can tell it to wait for the trade instead of buying single issues. Um, um, they suggest books based on your previous purchases, all that jazz. Wow! Um, and they've they've been uh, they've been awesome too. They started up right around the time Robo came out, so um, they've been uh, been really good to us. Uh, so we we always recommend them. And what are the other websites? Well, uh, Atomic Hyphen. Atomic-Robo.com, and then you've got Nuclear Power with a K.com, which is Brian's main site, um, where you can find both of our free comic book day stories ah, cool. in the Atomic 
section. And then I've got my blog slash portfolio, um, which is just scottwegener.com. Yeah, and, and again, check out the Majorspoilers.com website because we fe- featured your uh, Batgirl sketch on our Art Appreciation Moment of the Day. Really? <laughs> yeah, I, I dig it. I liked it. I liked it a lot. Awesome. Yeah, my, my daughter is a big Batgirl fan, and unfortunately... There is no such thing as a decent Batgirl comic book. <laughs> yeah, mm. um, yeah she, we had that problem recently with uh, with Wonder Woman also. Mm. We uh, we rented the Wonder Woman animation. I didn't even think to look at the rating because I figured it was a DC animated yeah. comic. Yeah. Um, lots, of, lots of references to giant knockers and uh, and other inappropriate things for eight-year-old little girls to hear. But yeah. Yeah. it didn't like the whole women's swords and killing things bit. So. Uh, yeah, I can understand that. Well, that's that's a great sketch that that you have up there. So definitely go check out everybody's websites and and see what they have going on, gentlemen. The last thing that we do when we talk about an issue is we kind of give it a rating, a meatloaf scale rating of one to five. One being I only want one slice of meatloaf and it maybe is not that good. Uh, five slices of meatloaf, of course, would be super awesome. Uh, cover it in cheese and gravy, kind of thing. So uh, I, obviously, because I already reviewed it up on the website, five slices of meatloaf from me because I just thought from beginning to end everything clicked. Um, Artwork is great. Story plotting and pacing uh, to me is great. And I I thought there were great moments tied in with great historical references. I give it, I'll I'll definitely give it a solid four slices. I, uh. I think it did slow down there at the in the middle, but I'm definitely in it for for the story. I'm really interested as to uh, what the elder gods have an atomic robo have to uh, <laughs> are, are gonna do together. Matthew, you've been pretty quiet this this episode or this issue. I've actually One. had some child care issues ah, going okay. on in the background. Okay, but, uh, I actually I would go I would agree with Rodrigo probably four slices of meatloaf. What I really enjoy is the dialogue. I really like the snappiness, and one of the things that always stuck with me, I think, ah, I think you put it on the website a while ago when we were talking about the uh, the happiness beam, the euphoric feeling is your brain being cooked. <laughs> that just, I, yeah, I love that Christmas card. I love that bit, and that always sticks with me when I think of Atomic Robo. That's what I think of is is dialogue like that and little bits like that that are just awesome. So I'd have to go four out of five slices as well. Excellent. All right, everyone, thank you for taking the time. Thanks again to Brian Clevenger and Scott Wegner for taking their time to talk to us about Atomic Robo. As they said, go visit the website, atomic-robo.com. Go bug your comic book retailer and tell them to get this thing in stock or at least put it on your pull list. And we're going to be back on Saturday with another uh, issue, hot, ready, roaring to go, because we know that you love comics, and we do too, and we will talk with you next time. Ah, horse feathers. If you have any questions, comments, topic ideas for future shows, or would like to sponsor a show, send an email to podcast at Majorspoilers.com. Visit Majorspoilers at Majorspoilers.com and be sure to check out the Major Spoilers forum. You can also follow Major Spoilers on Twitter at Twitter.com slash Majorspoilers and on MySpace at MySpace.com slash Majorspoilers. Fat Dick's revision of Superman I could save a few bucks and stand around And read through the covers of the comics on the stand But although every other page Would be backwards I suppose I could still read the evens and the odds Well I don't know Guess I haven't thought this all the way through Plus as soon as the comic book store guy knew They kicked my butt out on the corner What a major spoiler What a major spoiler 
think about a better way. If I was hulking green or gray, I could just bust through that brick wall, take their comic books away. But then the little meat would deal with all the tanks and bombs and guns. Have you ever tried to read a series with all that going on? Guess I need to rethink this plan. How would I back and board my comics with such huge hands? Guess I already told ya. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. If I'm Stark Raven, rich like a man of iron, I might not be surprised to find that I might actually have the hard cold to follow an entire storyline. Would I really even need to read upon all those escapades? I mean, who needs such distractions when your sister's such a babe? But the downside is such a beast. Being shot up in a fine be in the Middle East with a King Santo and soldier. What a major spoiler What a major spoiler Yeah, yeah, yeah What a major spoiler Whoa, 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 whoa What a major spoiler Major Spoilers Podcast, copyright 2009